Oops. There it is. Hey, welcome, 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 everybody. Uh, we have an exciting show. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about how you can heal your trauma. I promise it is possible. And our guest is going to talk about exactly how to do it today. So let's jump in. Here we go. Practicing polyamory, real life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real-life, flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. Never fails. That song still gets me going every single time. Welcome, 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 everybody, to today's awesome show. Before we jump in and chat with our guests, I want to quickly remind everybody, hey, we do three shows every single week, and we are open for questions. So if you have questions about your relationships or if there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed on the show, slide in my DMs. Let me know. Follow us on all social media platforms, especially Facebook and Instagram. That's where I'm most active, at Practicing Polyay. Send me a message and don't forget to enable notifications on YouTube and Facebook so you can join us for the live recording where you can get your questions answered live on the spot. And as always, I want to remind you, if you're listening to this podcast, you are a welcome guest to be on the show. We are here to share our imperfect stories and I want to get as many voices as possible to speak here because I know that the more stories we hear, the more others will see us in themselves and the more representation we have, the more we can strengthen our community. So go to practicingpolyamory.com and sign up today. All right, that is that daily spiel, but the best part, as always, is introducing our awesome guest. Today's awesome guest has seen a lot in her years as a therapist, but the one message that she wants to get across to her clients the most is that you are not broken and you can heal your trauma. Our guest honors each of her clients as the expert in her in their own lives, and she looks to bring a non-judgmental, curious energy where you feel comfortable and free to explore who you are, who you want to be, and how you can get there. Facing our trauma can be difficult, and sometimes it can get worse before it gets better. But as you move through this courageous journey, guided by our awesome guest, she will be there to support you in openness, collaboration, and humility until you reach the other side. I'm excited to chat with somebody who really seems to have a great understanding of the very human nature of therapy, and I hope you all enjoy this conversation too. Joining us today from the great state of Washington, welcome to the show, Heather Spreadborough. It's all about energy. It's Heather, true. welcome to the show. Thank you so much for hanging out and spending some time with me today. Thank you so much for having me on. It is my pleasure. So uh, let's dive right in. We're talking about you can heal your trauma. So, you know, trauma is obviously a focal point, a center point of uh, your practice and everything that you do. Uh, let's talk about what trauma means, I guess. We'll start with that and okay. uh, kind of talk about some of the trauma that you see within the polyamorous community. Um, so what does trauma mean? That's a very large question. I think it depends on the individual, what it means. Like for s some people, um, the interesting thing about trauma is for, you know, depending on who is involved in the situation, sometimes it's traumatic and sometimes it's not. Um, just because of different life experiences, where they come from, what their backgrounds are, you know, what previous small T traumas they had before a large tra trauma comes up. 
And, you know, so it's so individualized what someone considers trauma. So generally when people end up in my office, a lot of times it's um, sexual trauma from childhood or adulthood. I have a lot of clients who have um, been involved in molestation, rape, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, a few mm -hmm. clients who had kink situations go sideways. Um, so it, it runs the gamut. Right. But I'm so, also a trained sex therapist, so I end up doing a lot of the sexual abuse stuff. Got it. Got it. So trauma is obviously, I mean, it can mean a bunch of different things. It's very wide. I had uh, a another therapist on the show, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, that said pretty much what she sees in her office is um, a lot of grief and loss. So is trauma like just another way of saying grief and loss or how are these different? Um, I think it depends on the way in which somebody approaches it. You can have grief and loss without trauma and trauma without grief and loss, um, but you can have both. So um, grief and loss is a lot about, you know, losing partners, loved ones, friends. I'm sure a lot of people over the last few year or the last year have lost people from COVID and dealing mm -hmm. with that kind of stuff. When I was young, um, being in the LGBT the LGBTQ community in the eighties, I lost a lot of people to HIV. Mm -hmm. um, I never really considered that really a trauma for me personally, but I know a lot of people who have, and a lot of survival guilt goes on around that. Um, mm -hmm. I was actually having a conversation with a person I met recently that was talking about their survival guilt of having buried almost everyone they knew in the eighties from Ouch. HIV. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's grief and loss in that. Uh, and what you said was that there can be grief and loss without trauma, and there can also be trauma without grief and loss. Can I ask you for like some examples of how that might, how that might work? Um, so it, if somebody um, had a trauma happen where they, for instance, saw an accident and for them, it was very traumatic. Or if we take mm. in, um, but they weren't personally connected to it. So it wasn't so much about the grief Got and it. loss of losing somebody, but it was about the visualization okay. of seeing it. So. Totally. Okay. Totally makes sense. Now I have a, a better understanding of uh, that difference there. So let's say that somebody does experience a trauma, some kind of a trauma, uh, something that is lingering with them. Maybe it's something that they saw. Um, I mean, let's talk about a trauma that, that might work in the poly community. A, there's a lot of overlap between poly and kink. And that was something that you brought up a kink situation, BDS, BDSM situation that goes awry, right? Maybe somebody yeah. doesn't respect a safe word. That's probably the most common thing would be my guess. Yep. So somebody is traumatized. Can you kind of give me a story, right? Let's, let's hear a story. Maybe not, not, you know, specific, but, but specific enough. Let's, let's hear a story of, of somebody's trauma and how they can overcome that. Um, so I had a client who, um, had an incident where they realized that they were not comfortable in the situation they were in um, during impact play and they called their safe word 
and the top did not stop, like hit him a couple more times before they finally got out of it. So that would be a place where they had, you know, lost their agency at that moment in mm -hmm. not calling their safe word. So um, we were working on some other traumas and through working on those traumas, this one happened to come up. So um, we ended up processing it um, around, they weren't safe. So a lot of times because I do EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. We Say go, that one more time. <laughs> sorry. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yes. Okay. Fine by me. <laughs> kind of. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, we're we'll working. The eye movement part is bilateral stimulation. So getting stimulation on the right and left side back and forth. Okay. There you go. Your eyes are moving. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like just, yeah. just moving them. So in that we work in negative core beliefs, which are the I'm not good enough statements that every one of us has. I don't know a person who doesn't have an I'm not good enough statement or 10. Yep. 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 <laughs> Definitely me. Definitely guilty. Yeah. Um, so we work through kind of those and shift them through the process. So I guess in order to do that, we kind of have to talk about what EMDR is to describe Absolutely. That. Let's do that. Uh, Okay, so um, the easiest way to explain it is, is probably to look at the history of it. Um, so Shapiro is the person who invented it back in the mid 80s. Um, and she had cancer at the time and she went for a walk. And while she was on a walk, she realized at the end she felt better and she was thinking back over what was different about this. And she realized her eyes were moving back and forth as she went on this walk. Um, checking out the trees on either side of the path. So she went for another walk with another thing that was bothering her. And at the end, she was feeling better. So then she basically went to a um, her group of friends and told them about it and found that they couldn't move the eyes the way she was doing it. So she developed waving your fingers back to get people's eyes move right and left. Okay, my doctor does that to me, you know, to make sure that my eyes are working. Right? Yes, but this is a little different because we're doing it in a targeted way. So basically, and, and remind me one more time: it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Reprocessing, got it. Right. So basically, she set up a modality and then practiced on um, people who had um, been in Vietnam, and that's how it was developed. So basically, what they think happens is when you have a traumatic event, your amygdala fires. So your amygdala is your flight, fight, or freeze mm -hmm, portion mm -hmm. of your brain. And your hippocampus, which is your logic portion of your brain, is right next to your amygdala. And those two things communicate to lay memories where they're supposed to go. Okay. When our amygdala fires too hard, our hippocampus can't communicate with our amygdala, apparently. And so the memories end up in a different portion of your brain. Oh. Um, than it's supposed to. And this is what causes flashbacks in people. Oh. <gasps> yes, exactly. Bill and Ted just blown, blown minds. <laughs> I, I love a good Bill and Ted blown mind. Um, so basically <laughs> what they think happens is when we are doing the eye movement or today there's several different ways we do it because all of our arms and our shoulders got very sore doing this constantly. Uh, so there's light bars or there's um, 
devices called clappers that buzz each hand, or we just have a client so tap right and left on their knees um, to get that bilateral stimulation because what they think happens is that allows the amygdala and hippocampus to actually communicate and lay the memory where it's supposed to go. Interesting. So yeah. actually it physically moves the memory from one part of the brain to another? Kind of. It also helps you shift the way you think about okay. a thing. Um, for instance, there was a young lady who had um, agoraphobia. She was raised in South America. She um, was in a compound. Her family was wealthy. And so they were in a compound and somebody tried to kidnap her when she came to an office to get EMDR. She was basically agoraphobic because the world wasn't safe because she was kidnapped when she was five. Mm -hmm. In reprocessing it, she realized that she kicked that person, hit that person, screamed and pitched such a fit when he pulled her out of her bedroom that he dropped her at her front gate. So instead of having that thought that the world wasn't safe, she realized in processing through it that she was powerful enough to protect herself at five. Hell yes. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that kind of happens in EMDR. It takes it from one space to another and you kind of put different meaning to it. It also lowers the amount of emotionality behind it, which is why I do trauma work with EMDR instead of anything else, because it basically is the fastest way to move stuff out of the body. That is so freaking cool. Like I'm, I'm blown away. So, so by moving it, the way that I'm imagining it is like almost a physical move. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you got all these synapses in your brain, right? And the synapses that are connecting the bad memory you know, whatever you're like reprogramming it to like work with some other synapses over here mm -hmm. that gives you a different way of looking at that same situation. And that's just that yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. I wasn't aware that was something a person could do. <laughs> Bravo. Bravo. My, my little musical heart loves that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, oh, I'm a big fan of Hamilton, and so yeah, every time that plays, but it hasn't played quite like that. So good job at Business Bros Pod, our producer, awesome guy, um, my brother. Uh, <laughs> okay, Thank you so okay. Much. So, so we have uh, our memories being reprogrammed in our brain, and that's how you are helping people to overcome trauma i mean how long does the process usually take i'm assuming it's not a one one and done i'm gonna be in your office for two weeks and boom that's it right um not usually if there's like a single incident trauma somebody doesn't have a lot of history you can do it fairly quickly uh, most people by the time they land in my office have a long history of trauma um so it's very dependent on a couple of things. The first thing is, if you're going to do this kind of work, you 100% have to trust the therapist and the process because of a couple of things. First of all, you need to be open and tell the therapist what's going on in you, um, you know, physically, mentally. And the other part of this is one of my clinicians, I'm a supervisor too, um, of clinicians. And one of them said it the other day, I talked her into going to learn about EMDR and she was telling me, she's like, it's like voodoo magic, but I got to find a better way to say that. I'm like, eh, sometimes I do say it's kind of like magic. 
<laughs> nice. I love it. I love it. So um, I've had clients take as little as three months and as much as two and a half years. Okay. So it just depends on the level of trauma, how long it takes you to trust a therapist. Some people walk in my office ready to rock and roll and we're done in six months. Other people walk in my office. They've never been in therapy before. They're not terribly fond of the process and it takes them a while to get to know me, trust me, and kind of move through it. So it's depends. 60% of the time it works every time every <laughs> single time <laughs> every single time yeah i love times, it the times when emdr doesn't work is a if a client is not quite ready for therapy or b if they don't trust the therapist okay. i've had a couple come in and be like yeah i just really didn't you know trust my last therapist i'm like okay so let's take it slow get to know each other really build rapport and then go oh well I was going to go one direction, but let's talk a little bit more on that. So building that trust with a therapist who is approaching uh, therapy from an EMDR uh, standpoint, uh, if I am looking for that therapist, if I'm looking to get the EMDR therapy and I need to learn to trust my my therapist, what are some things that I want to ask? What are some things that I want to look out for? Um, the first thing I would um, ask around, well, okay, if we're dealing in polyamory, I'm going to say in order to trust that therapist and not have them break rapport, um, really making sure they're the kind of therapist who's going to support you in that relationship instead mm -hmm. of the kind of therapist who's going to be a judgmental jerk and basically be like, sure. I don't think that's healthy, right. which I have heard. I had a client break in tears surprise, the surprise. other day because I asked their pronouns, which frightened me that there are therapists out there who are not taking the time to even ask that question. <sighs> Deep breaths. Deep yes. Breaths. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So New world. If you are trans or even questioning, ensuring that your clinician, because I've seen people be in EMDR therapy and come out as trans to their therapist and have their therapist misgender them the rest of session. So mm -hmm. if, if you have any of those kind of things, checking that first um, is really important um, because okay you know, it kind of layers on top of already being traumatized, already mm -hmm. having to build trust. Then you put in a marginalized community and that puts a whole nother layer on it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we want to make sure that we feel safe, uh, that our, our pronouns are being respected, that our relationship choices are being respected, our uh, sexual orientations, our proclivity to kink, our whatever, all of these different things that, you know, are very obviously common in our polyam circles. Um, I guess I it's pretty also, good. Go yeah, ahead. I'd also make sure that the clinician you are choosing um, is officially trained in the MDR. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily that they need to be certified because that's another level, but they, they've done the basic training. Okay. Um, so um, 
that you're not putting yourself at risk. So there's, you know, just asking what is your training in EMDR? So if they've done a uh, basic session one and two, they're fully trained. They've had 10 hours of supervision under that. And for many reasons, people don't go on to get certified necessarily, mm -hmm. but just ensuring they're trained. All right. Well, you you mentioned something there uh, that if they don't have the right training, that they could be at risk. And at one point earlier, you said that one of the qualifications, for lack of a better word, uh, is is something to do with physical. So it, it sounds like there are some physical requirements. Some that like uh, doing EMDR therapy might take a physical toll on a person. What what does a person need to know about their physicality about their body, I guess, to make sure that they are um, eligible or, or a good candidate for EMDR therapy? So just making sure your EMDR therapist is using some form of bilateral stimulation that works for you. So when I was saying physicality, it's because originally you had to move your arm back and forth okay. um, for a full session. And if you're doing, you know, some days I do four and five sessions of EMDR. If I'm doing this for four or five sessions, my you're going to have some tight. really good biceps. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm not the one. So um, I, I prefer tapping myself, um, but the light bar, if that works for a person. So it's, it's just finding... And most clinicians who do EMDR are going to ask which one of these items. So the only time that it becomes slightly challenging is if somebody is, you know, higher functioning autism and um, tactile things bother them, that might be a challenge to figure out which one's going to work. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, we can find one that will work. Got it. Okay. Um, another thing that you mentioned, you were talking about uh, you know, it could take as little as three months or as much as two and a half years, depending on their level of trauma. And that kind of made me think, okay, so what is like, this is a, a personal story from your experience that I'm asking here. What is like the, the deepest, like probably one of the, I guess the thing that stands out to you that you were able to help someone through to help them heal their trauma. I think looking at people who had um, multiple like neglect in their childhood, along with sexual abuse from um, people in like neighborhoods and being able to fully work through all of the triggers that came up for them sexually when they are in polyamorous relationships and being able to kind of learn how to even communicate a trigger to their partners and communicate what um, to do if they are triggered and how to see the triggers to give them language around that while they're processing through it and then get them all the way through it. So recognizing triggers, working through triggers and being able to come out of the other side without having resentment, anger, all these other things towards the person that triggered them. Right. So a lot of times what I'll have clients do is I actually have them write a user manual okay. that covers all sorts of things, um, what their likes are, what their dislikes are, what their hard yeses are, what their hard nos are, what their maybes are, what to do if they're triggered, what it looks like when they're triggered, aftercare plans, 
all of that, regardless of top, bottom, whatever. Um, that way, when they get it, um, what their love languages are, how they communicate with people, that way, when they get in a relationship, they can be like, here, here's information. Let's make this easy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sign this contract. Here you go. Oh, wow. This is this is good stuff. Um <laughs> So interesting. I mean, in in a lot of relationships, especially uh, DS relationships, there are those kinds of contracts, so to speak. Um, so and this you know, is not so much about contract, but more about having language around who you are as an individual, as a sexual being, as a poly being, mm -hmm. as a kinky being. You know, just so that everybody's on the same page. In writing it out, I mean, some of my clients will hand it to other people. Some of them will just, that's the process in which they get the language right? to be able to do that, especially for those people who are raised um, AFAB. Like, the world's not great about allowing for sexual freedom in communication and teaching it. What do you mean by that? Um, I think a lot of times when you're raised in a female body, mm -hmm. um, there is a shame that is put on you around sexual communication. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people show up without even a voice in how to discuss what they like, what they don't like, like they haven't been empowered to do so. So yeah. this is one way to empower people to be able to have the conversation comfortably is to get it all written out. Got it. Yeah, no, I, I imagine there's so much power in words right you can see my my board up here i've got some stuff written down and it's just because when i write something down it gives it uh, a a realness i guess like it's it, it becomes more real there's a there's what's the word that i'm looking for there's a concrete like i have to get this done i have notepad upon notepad you know like i'm writing all the time and so when he ain't lying Exactly. <laughs> and so when I take the time to write down all of those different things that you mentioned, my hard yes is my hard no's, my love language, like all of these different things, uh, it gives me the power of knowing myself better. And mm -hmm. that empowers me in my relationships to ask for the things that I want, ask for the things that are important to me and know when I'm not getting those things. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think that communication portion, I mean, my running joke about polyamory is those of us who are involved in it have a kink around communication. Um, <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> so, I mean, just being able to get, and a lot of times when I'm working with couples who are opening up their relationship, um, that's where a lot of the work is in just learning how to communicate what the feelings are, the differences between jealousy, envy, and surprise that we all kind of lump into jealousy, mm -hmm. you know, all of that kind of stuff and being able to put language around it so you can freely have the discussion and not have shame and guilt and miscommunication shoved on top of it. So, and when you're dealing with people who have trauma on top of that, you know, there's a chance you're bringing up those old things. For sure, for sure. Um, wow, this has been really, really good. Like I have more questions, but like I, I, I we're getting close to time. Uh, let's see, you know what? I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna go with it. Okay, so EMDR, couples opening up, trauma like that's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. to be kind of dealing with and you know we we 
see this a lot. And, you know, I personally, uh, you know, I, I, I feel a certain type of way when I see we're having trouble in our relationship. So we decided to open up, right? It's like, eek, ah, what are you doing? Right. But sometimes people will say that, right. They're having trouble in their relationship. So they decide to open up or for whatever reason that they decide to open up, uh, mm-hmm. maybe they're being smart about it and actually going to a therapist before they open up. Right. That's, that's a much better situation. Mm-hmm. So when you're working with people who are opening up for the first time, do you immediately go to EMDR? Is that something that you take kind of a, a step? Go ahead. So <laughs> EMDR, I usually do individually. Okay. But I always have that trauma lens on. And there are some things in EMDR I use outside of using that modality. There's some coping skills that are really good that are EMDR coping skills that I will teach couples to be able to contain whatever emotionality is coming up. I also use the lens of negative core beliefs and how they're ruminating in the body or when somebody's triggered by a past event that comes up in the current event that then is heightened. So, you know, somebody hears something that kind of triggers an old memory of something that happened 10 relationships ago. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. now they're putting that emotion into this one. And instead of being at a five, they're at a 20. (laughs) So bringing that lens in is always there, but I don't usually use that modality inside couples therapy. Got it. Got it. Uh, that reminds me of a question that I saw on Facebook not too long ago. Somebody was saying uh, that it feels like they can that like they can't get over their trauma. You know, whether it was ten relationships ago, ten years ago, whatever it was, they just have this this fear that they cannot get over their trauma. What would you say to someone who is having that fear? Um, what? How is it serving you? Like, what is it about it that is comforting to you? Because sometimes people are, you know, they get into this space where it's more around, I am a victim rather than I am a survivor. And that victim is safe for them because it's what they've known for so long. So sometimes when we're working in trauma, there's a safety to that trauma because it's what comfortable. If we pull that out, all of a sudden your adrenal system isn't firing and you're uncomfortable. Like, Mm. I don't know what this calmness is when something going to happen. So, you know, there is, um, we always tell people in therapy, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. Right, right. This is the, it could get worse. You could become uncomfortable. So just kind of exploring what it is about the trauma that is benefiting you, even if that's in negative ways. So interesting. So interesting. It's like we have to convince ourselves that it's okay to be uncomfortable. And it's almost like a a change uh, or a challenge to our identity uh, when we've identified as, as the victim for so long. Mm-hmm. To say, actually, I'm not, and this is, you know, I love it. I I, I I can't finish that sentence because you've said it so well already. Um, and I guess I, I just, that was good. That was good. I approve. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think it's, I think that's part of the building rapport, right? I had a client a little while ago who just could not say they had trauma. 
So we mm -hmm. didn't use that language. And we went through and we went through and we were working and we were working and they, they kept on comparing themselves to other people because they had it worse. Oh, that person had it worse. I shouldn't call this job. And it took me about nine months. And I finally, they were getting like, they finally kind of broke through and went, oh, this isn't normal. And then I read through a DSM, the PTSD criteria that, you know, nine months ago, I knew this person met completely. Mm -hmm. However, they didn't want to own it. So I just, I, I was hands off and just kind of pointed different things out until I got them to the point where I read through the DSM and went, um, I think you have PTSD. <laughs> and, they went, and my brain goes to what if it's something else? And I'm like, look, at this point, you have all of the criteria. Therefore, we're going to call it this because because you have all these symptoms, I'm going to treat it like it's this. Quack, quack, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a matter of what is it that the client needs? Because we need to show up for the person who's sitting in front of us. There is no template that says you do this, then this, then this, then this. That's not very person-centered and hang it's on. not going to help anybody. Therapy isn't linear and it just goes from like A to B and that's it? You're there kidding are, me. There are some modalities like that. Needless to say, I don't do those ones. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, Heather, it has been so much fun getting to know you. Uh, I've, I've really loved what I've learned about EMDR and the scientific way that, that it all works. Um, I want to ask you, is there anything that I missed? Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked? Or if not, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with our audience today? Um, I think final thoughts are when looking for a therapist interview them, mm -hmm. ask them the questions. How do you, you know, how do you think about poly kink? Cause I mean, a lot of people, because it's kind of trendy right now, apparently will pull it up poly friendly or kink aware or whatever. And I would just ask the questions cause I've seen people who aren't even licensed that are advertising. And I'm like, so <laughs> if you have trauma, especially if you have trauma, make sure that your clinician is um, well-trained. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, again, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been such a blast. I really feel like I've uh, learned a lot and gotten a lot of uh, value from our conversation. I hope our audience has too. Great. Thank you so much. All right. And thank you as always to our live audience for tuning in today. As a reminder, when we're live, you get no commercial interruptions, but the same can't be said for those podcast downloads. So if you want to avoid the commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live Monday through Wednesday, 2.30 Pacific time, or sign up for our Patreon where you'll get access to our commercial-free RSS feed and support the show. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, wherever it is you download your podcast. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review. We'll really appreciate it. That is all we've got. For you all today. Thank you one more time to you, Heather. And you. Uh, until next time, where's it at? Where's it at? Where's it at? There it is. Have a nice day. Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com slash practicingpolya.